And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the first chapter, back to the first chapter of Job. We're going to pick it up in verse 6. I want to read this section. Got the 18 here. Yeah. yeah, I don't know about the 18. Mike's, Mike's the 18. Would you be good to do this session? I can. Would you like me to do that? I'll sit with my wife. Sounds great. Job 1, starting in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when the sons and daughters, his sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck them to send servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck them down, uh, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the borders and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone escaped to tell you. Then Job rose, so what does that do? tore his garments, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave me. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Again, there was a after you and to grow in our understanding of you and of your ways and of our life experiences so that like Job we will not sin with our mouths or in our hearts even in the most difficult of circumstances and in that may our Lord Jesus be praised honored 
faith growing through affliction. That's what we're looking at in our study this week in the book of Job. Um, in this particular talk, we want to look at the bracketing story, the beginning, and we're not going to talk very much at the end except to note the end so that we can understand uh, the backstory. You know, if you like Phineas and Ferb, you know, Dr. Dukenshmertz, it's always about the backstory. Whatever he was doing, you know, he gave you a little bit of the backstory. I love that. Like in a rather perverse kind of way. The important thing to realize or remember is that Joe didn't know about any of this. He doesn't find out anything's going on, certainly anything bad is going on, until these messengers start arriving, one on the heels of another, to tell him after disaster, about disaster after disaster after disaster. We know more about Job's life than Job knew about his life because the author slash editor has given us this introduction, this backstory that provides really essential theological information for our understanding of the ways of God with human beings, whether it be Job or yourself or those who suffer around you. It strongly suggests to us that God, what God's ultimate purpose in the suffering of his servants is, although because of the nature of the subject matter, even when we get answers, we're always aware that there's more about it. So the, the answers that come are always kind of couched in further mystery. And uh, I was talking to somebody on the break, you know, this book is so rich. You've heard people preach from Job, or you've read books about Job, and again and again, no matter how well you know the book, you think, wow, I never thought about that part. I never came at it from that angle. That's really great. How could I have missed that? So again, there, there, we see, but then there's more to see. And then but it's always because we're up against the reality of the infinite personal God, uh, the sovereign of the universe, uh, whose ways are not our ways, whose thoughts are not our thoughts. So even when he gives it to us to understand his ways, there's mystery. The mystery doesn't contradict what we know, but we can never fathom the depths of the knowledge God, as scripture says repeatedly. So we get an idea by seeing what led to Job's trial through this interchange between the Lord God and Satan. And if we keep these things in mind as we wrestle with the, uh, the uh, reality of our own suffering, uh, that will be helpful to us. So the first point I want us to consider is that when we think about experience, our experience, especially difficult experiences, times of affliction and suffering, we frequently uh, find ourselves in need of, a, of an explanation that we can't derive from the experience itself. 
in the framework of this prologue and then the epilogue in chapter 42, verses 10 through 17, that brackets the story of Job's suffering, Job, the faithful, I mean, excuse me, Yahweh, the faithful God of the covenant, again, note that name, this is not only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it's the God who has now called and formed the Israel into his own peculiar people who have communion with him through the provisions of the Mosaic law, not only the commandments, but particularly the, the redemptive uh, provisions of that law. He is the God who is always faithful, who never forsakes his people. We're, we're supposed to remember that's the God we're talking about. He graciously reveals himself uh, to us, and he tells us more about what's going on, the meaning of Job's experience than Job at the time had himself. When we think about our own experience, we might, uh, at best, we can maybe decipher, decipher some proximate explanations. Uh, I was talking to Jeff last night about his motorcycle ride. Uh, and he was explaining that he's on this motorcycle and following somebody and they veered off and he just for a moment followed that line of sight while he was going in a different direction and next thing he was flying through the air 60 feet uh, and cracks his head and his helmet and I mean, was a, but God is gracious. Well, well, why did that happen? Well, it's because he took his eye off where he was going for a minute. That, that's a partial explanation. You know, how come a high school senior dies in a blazing traffic accident after his graduation party? Well, he was drinking, and he was driving too fast on the street. That's a kind of an answer to why, but it's not much of an answer because it's too close. Why did my wife die? Why? Why, why? Well, it was COVID, or it was pneumonia, or it was heart failure. Again, we can, within the circle of human experience, we can sometimes answer questions about why, but the question we really want answered, we can never derive from experience itself. And so we're looking for a deeper meaning. And we as Christians, we can say, God, foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. True words. We can say with Romans 8, 28, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. But when those broad principles regarding providence intersect with our own pain, we often have trouble fitting those together in a satisfying way. Now, on a on a theological level, this raises an important question about the relationship between God's, what we call, general revelation and his special revelation. And I want us to think about this briefly just for a few minutes. Perhaps affliction is the most pointed and painful and powerful situation where we need to try to make sense on a macro level of our own experience. Again, why me, Lord? What, why did this happen to me or to my loved ones? And where we're up against the insufficiency 
of general revelation, that is what we can discern from the world around us. Again, I'm not going to explain general revelation. I hope you're at least familiar with that terminology, but that's the, the way in which God reveals himself through creation and providence, and we access it kind of directly by living in God's word. And special revelation is his verbal revelation by which he explains more completely, and that's kind of where we're going, so I won't anticipate that. The problem of interpreting the meaning and the ethical demands of our own experience um, is a problem that we all face at one time or another, but really during times of affliction. As I said, God reveals himself to all mankind through his works of creation and providence. And this is what we call a general revelation. We often quote Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. Or Psalm 104, verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Paul says that God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that we, fallen, knowledge-suppressing human beings, are without excuse. So in our uh, Confession of Faith, chapter 1, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, the wisdom, and the power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. That highlights the insufficiency of general revelation with respect to redemption. But we need to take it a step farther because the scripture does. General revelation was never intended to stand alone. Even before the fall, it was necessary for God to speak to his human creatures in order that for them to understand their place in the world. So we can say the heavens declare the glory of God. But we wouldn't know that the heavens declare the glory of God if Psalm 1, special revelation, didn't say the heavens declare the glory of God. You think about all the non-believers out there that look at the heavens. I remember the, uh, the Russian cosmonaut way back in the day who was the first man out in space. He came back and he said, I didn't see God up there, so we atheists are correct. Step outside. Well, he was up in space, and that's where God's supposed to be, and you didn't see him, and you think, boy. All right, so, so we need special revelation. We need words from God apart from being fallen people. We definitely need to know about the gospel and the way of restoration, but even before the fall, God spoke his word to Adam and Eve. So general revelation provides uh, a cosmic context in which the words of God actually make sense and give direction to our lives. Without special revelation and the covenant relationship that is established through that special revelation, 
um, we would not be able to understand the mark of God on all things. It's there. We can see it when it's pointed out to us, but we would not be able, we were never intended to be able to come to a kind of a natural theology simply on the basis of observing an unfallen creation, let alone a fallen creation. Again, uh, the Confession of Faith gets at this in chapter 7, section 1. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition, any blessing of him, uh, uh, fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, except by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. Both those words are critical. Covenant is the relationship. We know and enter the relationship by God's expression, his special verbal revelation. So then after the fall, the knowledge of God and of God's wisdom has been lost through our sinful suppression of the truth. And although we're never completely effective in suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, we give it our college try and do our very best to deny what is there. And so there are now two complicated factors. Our fallenness, uh, we talk about the noetic effects of sin, the effects of sin on our thinking. And that's this willful suppression of the truth. But then there's also the curse on God's created cosmos, what Thomas Boston called the crook in the law. The universe is out of kilter, out of joint. It doesn't give us a clear, unambiguous message like it did before the fall. Paul says in Romans 8 that the creation was subjected to futility on account of Adam's sin. Uh, it is in bondage to corruption. So when we think about our experience, think of that in the category of general revelation, how do we make sense of life in the world? We would never understand it without God's special revelation. Now, when we're faced with God's special revelation, we suppress it, and the world that we're trying to make sense of doesn't make sense because it's torqued, it's, it's messed up. And of course, there wouldn't be any affliction, would there, had there been no fall. Sickness, death, suffering, sorrow, all of that is a result of human sin. So, special revelation, as it's recorded for us in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, are absolutely necessary for the attainment of true wisdom and understanding, including our ability to decipher the meaning of our suffering and sorrow. God's word is the interpretive key to all of God's revelation. Uh, you know, Calvin used the example of spectacles, okay? An old man with bleary vision has trouble making out the audience in front of him and he can't read his notes anymore, but if he puts on his spectacles, with the aid of spectacles, he begins to read distinctly. 
So scripture, Calvin says, gathering up the otherwise confused knowledge of God in our minds, having dispersed our dullness, clearly shows us the true God. So we need the Bible. We need this special revelation. And that's what we have in the whole book of Job, obviously, is the word of God. But these opening sections give us that bigger picture, that back story. Also, so not only is there a matter of the clarity, the perspicuity of God's special revelation, but it's also normative. So again, if God tells us one thing and our experience seems to contradict that, we don't adjust the Word of God to fit our experience, we adjust our understanding of experience to fit the Word of God. Again, that should be a no-brainer, but Christians all over our country are fudging on the teaching of Scripture because their experience tells them something else. God condemns certain practices in his word, but you know people who practice those things that are really nice. They're your friends. And it's very seductive to say, well, I'd rather have my friendship and, and become across as an understanding person than hold to the revealed standards of God's word. Well, that happens in ethics all the time, but it also happens theologically and anthropologically when we're trying to figure out what is God doing with me or with other human beings. Paul tells us, or tells Titus and therefore us, that the knowledge of the truth fits in, accords with godliness. Again, as I mentioned in chapter 28, the bottom line to the answer, where is wisdom to be found, comes from God himself. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. So, subjectively, it's the redemptive and restorative revelation of God, apart from which the renewal of our minds by the Holy Spirit cannot happen, that is necessary for us. You know that Paul repeatedly speaks about the renewing of your mind. Or Isaiah, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He is transcendent, and we are limited and dependent. So we have to be able to access God's mind, the mind behind his works, and we do that because he has made them known to us. So to seek to understand yourself, your behavior, your attitudes, the way the world operates, human history, your own calling, all of those questions that we have to wrestle with requires the explanations that are, and we're thankful for this, that are offered to us in the Word of God written. Try to understand these things without the guiding and controlling revelation of God and Holy Scripture is futile, but more than that, it's folly, it is sin. The special revelation, which is the book of Job, gives us an understanding of Job's situation, even though Job initially didn't understand it, and of course we don't really know if he ever came to understand, there's nothing in the epilogue of God then finally explaining it all to Job. He just knows everything disappeared. It was miserable. And then, 
and they it was restored to him although God didn't speak to him all right so what do we learn from this prologue I'm gonna have to scoot along here um, don't have time to savor this so I hope you'll savor this this afternoon while you're hydrating and watching your screen and you know, all that stuff Mark told you to do let's just think about the major characters real quick and the initiating action so obviously the hero the fake hero of the story is Job who is presented as a righteous man who is suffering inexplicably to him his character is mentioned twice both in terms of his piety uh, and his commitments his convictions chapter 1 verse 1 he was blameless and upright feared God and turned away from evil that's the way he's described by the narrator of this opening section and then in chapter 2 God says of Job he's blameless and upright fearing God and turning away from evil now we ought to mention just because there's still so much misunderstanding of this kind of language in the Old Testament Job isn't claiming to be sinless God isn't claiming of Job that he is sinless uh, Job himself will ask the question in chapter 9 how can a human being be right before God and you just think of that little detail after the party was over when his children would gather for a birthday celebration Job would come after the place was swept out and cleaned up and all the dishes were washed and pushed away put away he would offer a sacrifice in case his children had inadvertently sinned against God. Now, do you suppose Job thought his children might have a problem that he didn't have himself? So Job is not claiming to be innocent in that absolute sense. Actually, when you get to chapter 31, he kind of explains what he means. But I think this idea of blamelessness some of you know what I'm talking about. I mean, we're always, if we're faithful Christians, we're under conviction pretty much all of the time. We know that we sin inadvertently, but what really bothers us is sometimes we sin deliberately. If you have a particular besetting sin, you know the frustration of asking God to forgive you for the hundredth time, or the five hundredth time. And yet, in your most honest moments, you look deep down into your soul and you say, but I love God. And I want to be holy. And I hate what's going on in my life. It's not a big leap then to what Paul says about almost being schizophrenic. I rejoice in the law of God inwardly, but I, I got this other guy in my skin who does the very things I don't want to do. See, I think that's, that's kind of the heart of a man like Job and the kind of people we ought to be. But the spinoff of that is that in your public life and in your consistent life, somebody else would look at you and say, you know, they're never mean, they're never selfish, they don't cheat, 
They show up for work on time. They love their kids. They take care of them. To the outsider, you look blameless. You're behaving yourself at the same time that inwardly you see how far short you fall again and again and how much we need the grace of God every moment of every day. That's the kind of man Job is. Not an innocent man, but blameless and upright, one who fears God and turns away from evil. He's not only a holy man in that sense, sanctified by the blood, although there's no reference to an atoning sacrifice for Job, but the idea is there in these sacrifices that he offers on behalf of his children, but he's also happy. I mean, he's doing really well. Seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. He's the greatest of all the people of the East. And so he's blessed with great material prosperity. Is it really possible to be both holy and happy? Well, apparently it is. Don't the two militate against each other? I mean, again, think of those New Testament warnings. And they're there in the Old Testament as well. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptations and into snares, Paul says, to the rich in 1 Timothy. In chapter 29, Job kind of pictures his previous serenity, the good old days, compared to his present agonies and sorrows. Oh, that I were as in the months of old, he writes, as in the days when God watched over me. The implication, God has abandoned me. But there were days when I had that sense of God's abiding watch care over me. When his lamp shone upon my head, and his light, in, and by his light, I walked through darkness. As I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me. So he's looking back longingly at what he had known before the roof fell in. And that describes what he enjoyed, a sense of the presence of God, the happiness of his family. And again, you, you've had enough life experience that you can remember good old days in the light of bad present circumstances. And those were genuine blessings from God. You know, we've been sort of taught, I think in the modern age as Christians, that there really isn't any real connection between holiness and happiness. Unless the happiness is completely inward, so that your outward life might be kind of a crapshoot. Maybe there's covenant blessings, maybe there's covenant cursings, but you know, we all sort of say, well, what about Job? Job's the exception that proves the rule. Job enjoyed the blessings of God and rejoiced in those. What's more, his friends remind him that he had been a counselor to others. Chapter four, verse three, you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come upon you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. So they're sort of saying, physician, heal yourself. 
You know how this goes. You've seen sufferers. You have come alongside. You have counseled them. So now take your own counselors. And it just adds to the agony of Job as he wrestles with the question. By God's own account, Job has a basic integrity. And yet, God is pleased to put him to the test, to approve him. There are passages in the New Testament, I won't take time right now, but you can look them up, where the word test is used, and it's really the sense of testing to approve something. You know, if I knew, uh, if I knew, uh, packet of underwear at the, I don't know whether they do this with ladies' underwear, I don't. But oftentimes, in a package of men's underwear, you unfold the underwear and there's a little slip of paper there that says, tested by inspector number, that means they go, and it's really good. They tested it to approve that it's okay. Well, God is testing not to destroy Job or to expose its hypocrisy or its weakness, but to approve it. That's the point. Yes, Job is what God says he is, and God is going to prove that to his critic, Satan. But in the process, Job goes from a pretty serene, noble saint to a needy, broken sinner, newly aware of his absolute dependency upon the ongoing grace of God. Job's questions about God torment him, not because he's a skeptic, but because he's such a good believer. These things wouldn't bother him if he didn't know this God and love this God. Kind of like when you hear something about a dear, dear friend, a report that is a report or a claim of some despicable behavior, your heart resists believing it because you love that friend. It may turn out to be true, but your inclination is not to believe it because that's Job. Job is pressed to think that God is foolish or unjust, but he can't go there because he knows and he loves this God. Satan, the other, protagonist. He's the accuser. That's what his name means. He shows up in the first gathering of the angelic hosts and then again in chapter 2. Satan came among the sons of God as they appeared before uh, God. And uh, and when Satan, uh, when God asked Satan, you know, what have you been up to? He talks about, oh, I've been here and there roaming around, looking around and so forth. And you can remember Peter's words, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. His intent is malicious. Again, let's underscore that because Satan never comes to you as an enemy, as someone who hates your guts. He comes as a friend. He comes to help you. He comes to understand you. He comes to show you how to move forward. That's the way he did with Eve and Adam. That's the way he does with each one of us. 
This is the spirit that always opposes, who always hates us. And the more we love God, the more he hates us. Remember, Jesus said he's a murderer. He's always been a murderer, and he murders with lies. Satan showed up in his red leotard, with his horns, and his pointy spear. He had run. We might laugh that he'd run. Never shows up that way because he's a liar, a deceiver, a seducer. And again, think how many times in the course of a, a day or a week, ideas will present themselves or they'll come to you through the, the, the words of peers or siblings or family or the broader culture. They come as friendly and helpful words, but they are murderous lies. And we have to be alert to that all the time. And I, I find so often that by the time people, even Christian people, will hear, I should say, listen to the truth, they're so vested in the lie. You know, I'm really sure that the first sin we sin is not the most dangerous one. It's the second sin when we determine not to repent for the first son under the conviction of God. I mean, nobody screwed up worse than David, right? Murder and adultery. Getting worse than that? Terrible, terrible sin. But he repented. Nathan came to him, his heart was broken. We're so often guarding against the first sin, and we should. But if you sin, the greatest grace that God can give you is to bring deep conviction. And if somebody comes with a word for you, and you're tempted to say, I need your support, you don't want their support. You want them to tell you the truth. Satan lies. In the moment, Jesus heard the voice of Satan even through beloved Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Reminding the things of this world, of man. So let's just remind ourselves that Satan really is the bad guy. And he's always the bad guy. And he's a very effective destroyer. But it's not us in the last instance that Satan hates. It's the Lord God. And he hates us for God's sake. He has such contempt for God that in accusing Job, he's actually accusing God. How would you like to be the person who had to buy friendship? You got no friends, but you really want some friends. So you go around and offer, will you be my friend? I'll give you $20. They said, no, I won't do it for 20, but I'll do it for 50. You had to buy friendship. That's exactly what Satan says about the God of the universe. You can't have any friends unless you buy them. You have bought Job's love and loyalty. And I'm gonna prove it to you, God. You take that away from him, and he will drop you like a bad habit. You see, it's not Job that's finally being accused. It's God being accused. So he says, you know, you put a hedge around Job. 
you blessed the work of his hands. You increased his his uh, you have increased him in the land. So what do you expect? Of course he's going to love you. It's kind of like in our day and age, you know. The more we depend upon the the gifts of the government, the more we're going to be loyal to the government that keeps handing out. I mean, the government really does have to buy friendship, <laughs> but God doesn't. And so God is going to prove by vindicating Job that Job is the real deal and that God is the real God, adorable, one to be worshipped and praised, one to be lived for, whether or not there's any perks in the transaction. To say that humans only love and serve God because it is profitable to them, there's a word for that, it's called eudaemonism. The system of ethics that considers the moral value of actions in terms of their ability to produce happiness. And there are preachers who preach Christianity in that way. You worship God and God will give you whatever you can name and claim. The other thing about Satan that's obvious here, I know I'm coming up on time, and I really am because they're waiting with these kids, so I'm going to have to, I told you I was going to read from one section to another, so, but let's finish with Satan. Satan is portrayed very, very clearly as, an, as a finite creature, fallen angel in the larger Old Testament story, that faces definite limitations on his activity. He can't hurt Job unless God allows him to do so. His purpose always is subject to the larger purpose of God. And again, I think you, you all know that, but C.S. Lewis was right when he pointed out in the Screwtape Letters uh, that the pop, in the popular imagination, Satan is equal with God. It's a kind of a yin and yang. They're both omniscient. And even I find a lot of us as Christians, we sort of believe that Satan is omnipresent because we all claim to be tempted by Satan at the same time. But he's not omnipresent. He's not infinite. He's not eternal. So Lewis says the counterpart of Satan is not God, but the Archangel Michael or some other preternatural. You know, I, I heard that name for years and I finally looked it up in the dictionary. Supernatural is transcendent and divine. Preternatural deals with all these angelic beings that are superhuman but not divine. So use it in a sentence, amaze your friends. Preternatural. So Satan then is under limitation. He can't do whatever he wants to do. So the purposes of Satan, as malignant as they are, are always serving the interests of God. The uh, German poet put it well when he said, Satan is the one who wills forever evil and does forever good. Because God turns his evil to good without fail. Where Calvin puts it this way, God holds the helm and converts all there, the demons' efforts, 
into the execution of his judgments. All right, that's not a nice crisp finish, but it is a break in the outline, so we'll pick it up there tomorrow. Um, let's pray, and then we'll see if there are announcements. Uh, on the money here, time wise. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are who you say you are, and you have told us so much about yourself even in this book that we've been thinking about. We thank you for revealing yourself to human beings through the works of creation and providence. But most of all, we thank you for revealing yourself in your word and in the word incarnate, our Lord Jesus. And we remind ourselves that we have not seen him, and yet we love him because the scriptures have told us of him and of his death and of his resurrection. And so though we have not seen him, we love him and rejoice with a joy unspeakable and filled with glory. Will you bless us this afternoon in our other activities? We do pray again with the, uh, the heat levels that you will keep us safe, help us to have as much fun as possible uh, safely. Be with all of those that are gonna be coordinating this huge array of activities um, help us to make their jobs as easy as possible. Uh, and uh, thank you again for blessing us in this hour. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.